0: This edition of the Ringer MLB show is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here at the Ringer, we have our disagreements, but there shouldn't be any debate about this. Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer with only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs. That's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light. So there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. I would have liked to have seen Montana. This is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. As always, we are part of The Ringer Podcast Network, home to On Shuffle with host Micah Peters, Binge Mode with Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, The Watch with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, And the Ringer NBA show and the big picture and more, more podcasts and you know what to do with. But if you do get through all those podcasts, you should also check out written content at TheRinger.com. I wrote about our favorite general manager, Jerry DePoto. The one that sent Gene Segura and Mitch Haniger to Seattle and probably is the reason the Mariners are in position to make the playoffs right now. I can also recommend Meg Schuster's article on shark conservation up now today at the Ringer. So you should definitely check that out as well. We've got a jam-packed show. We are so enamored with the Mets right now that we're going to have three separate guests on to talk for a full hour of Mets coverage because there is just that much to discuss. But as always, the first man up is Zach Cram.
1: Zach, hello.
0: So what we're going to do if you ever seen a movie, it's not a movie, it's uh, about like a 12 minute science film called Powers of 10. I can't say I have. Okay. Well, you should because it's really cool. So it starts with an aerial view of a couple having a picnic in Chicago and shows one square meter and then zooms out to show progressively larger and larger areas. So it's showing the earth and then the solar system and then the the Milky Way galaxy and then all the way out to the edge of the known universe and then all the way back in until you're like inside one of their red blood vessels or red blood cells. So what we're going to do is start sort of in and then we'll zoom out later in the show with, with Sean and Ben, but uh, that was all a very roundabout way of saying Juris Familia got traded over the weekend and the return has been uh, characterized as underwhelming. So let's start there and then zoom out slowly as, as we go through the segment.
1: Well, first, I'm just surprised you're able to talk about blood cells without uh, getting into hand, foot and mouth disease. But uh, with we'll talk about that too. <laughs> with Familia, The return has been characterized as light. I've seen a lot of criticism online. I'm not quite there. I'm not sure where you stand on it, but Juris Familia is a good but not elite reliever, and I think with the big returns we've seen for relievers over the last few seasons, there's definitely been sort of an elite boost, whether that's subjective or not. I think below the level of guys like Chapman or Brad Hand, you're not seeing these big returns, and even Brad Hand yielded such a bigger turn in Francesco Mejia because he has team control for multiple years after this one. Familia is a free agent after the season, so it's only a couple-month rental. And he's not the best closer in baseball. He's probably not as good as Kelvin Herrera at this point, And Herrera didn't fetch that much when he went to Washington last month. So I'm not as displeased with the return as some other observers seem to be. Bobby Wall, who's a middle reliever who went back to New York in the trade, is someone who actually really intrigues me. He strikes out a ton of batters. His strikeout rate at AAA this year is over 40%. It's over 30% in his minor league career. And I'm not predicting... The future all-star birth for him or anything, but it wouldn't shock me if this turned into something similar to the Mark Melanson-Felipe Vazquez deal from mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, where the Nationals traded for the proven closer in Melanson, traded someone away who was basically major league ready, and then within, I don't know, six months, it turned out Vazquez was better. I don't know if Wall is quite at that level, but I don't think it's nothing, especially for someone like Familia, who might not be that attractive anyway.
0: That's sort of where I'm at. I think the knee jerk. uh, Wow. They traded Familia for two guys. Nobody's ever heard of is it's a little bit of a 2016 mindset where Familia is no longer like he might've been the best closer in baseball or close to it uh, when the Mets were making their world series run and then going back to the playoffs in 2016. He's not that guy anymore. He's been hurt. And like you said, he's only going to be around for uh, with the eights for the next couple months. And Wall's a live arm, and somewhat troublingly for a team that seems to be born under a bad sign like the, the Mets have, he's got an injury history. So there's a lot of boomer bust potential uh for Wall, but there's definitely potential there. You know, I think the Chapman trade is not like a roll to Chapman isn't the comparison. Uh the comparison, I don't even think the comparison's Mark Melanson, because Melanson then is a lot better than Familia now. I think the comparison is he's somewhere between and I think it's awesome that the Nationals have made so many uh, reliever rental trades over the past two or three years that we can have this this uh, taxonomy to, to choose from. It's somewhere between uh, Calvin Herrera and the Brand- Brandon Kinsler deal from from last year. So there's, it's nice that they got something. I think getting bonus money is good because you know the Mets are are, are a team that uh, you know they're not. Uh, the turn of the century astros in latin america but they've gotten some some quality players out there and you know bonus money always helps it's it's fine you know and i never really expected the familiar trade to really move the needle i think there's some deserved frustration uh in that the mets are not taking back any of the salary to get a bigger return and that's the uh that's one of those things that that i think is it's an interesting way to judge a trade because it shows how committed the team, the selling team, is to uh, to kickstarting its rebuild or getting better again soon, rather than just shipping off a, a big veteran contract. And the, it's doubly embarrassing for a team that literally plays in New York to uh, to rely on the Oakland A's to to uh, to suck up some of the, the salary that they're shedding. But I don't know, you know. At the same time, I don't think that, that three million dollars, you know, ups this, you know, gets Will Toffey out of the deal and gets AJ Puck in it. You know, I don't know how much of a difference that's gonna make in terms of boosting the prospect return. It'll probably help some, but I just don't know that anything that they would have gotten for Familia would have would have uh, moved the needle. Like you mentioned Brad Hand as as another top end reliever. Like he's that kind of name, but in terms of just stats, familiar I don't know if Familia's been any better than Adam Simber this year.
1: I agree. And the other thing, of course, to note with Familia is that uh, it's sort of a a frustrating and icky situation all around, given that he was suspended last year for uh, Mm -hmm. violating the league's domestic violence policies. And switching, I guess, to Oakland for a second, it's a little disconcerting for them because they've been such a fun ride over the last month. I wrote about them last week. We've talked about them on the podcast before, and there are a lot of relievers available who don't have that in their background and whether that mm. influenced trade negotiations in the return or not it's just something of course that we have to remind ourselves when a player like this gets traded
0: yeah and i don't know how much that impacts his trade value probably not as much as it should but it's a non trivial pr consideration if you know if you want to get to the most cynical possible view of it um, you know even and there's there are guys like that on almost every team in sports and you know i am as at much at a loss, as much at a loss, in, you know, as to how to really process that constructively as I was two or three years ago when we were talking about this with Chapman or you know, anybody else who came before that. So it's it's a, a complicated situation. But even then, you know, it again feels gross to talk about it like that. But it's another reason that Familiar would be unattractive to to a trade suitor. So you know, it's it's uh, it's got to be disappointing to to trade a guy who saved 50 games a couple years ago uh, for two minor leaguers that very few people have ever heard of, you know, unless you didn't watch, if you didn't watch Will Toffee at Vanderbilt, then you probably have never heard of either of these guys. Um, so I could see why that would be frustrating. I just don't think this is a, the ripoff that ever almost everybody but you has seemed to to make it out to be.
1: I mean, maybe I'm biased because uh, Bobby wall has, been an all-star closer for me for something like five seasons in an out-of-the-park baseball franchise, but okay. uh, we can move on from that.
0: <laughs> I mean, you mentioned the, the hand, foot, and mouth disease. I just don't even know where to start. Like, Law Mets just sort of having this fatalistic view about the team, uh, is it's? I think it's sort of
1: facile and sort of tired, but this doesn't happen to any other team, right? The one thing I'll say about the Mets, and this is something Ben has brought up on the podcast before, is I think the notion that they're cursed is rather overblown. They made the World Series just in 2015. I mean, even their World Series title drought uh, goes back to 1986. If there are 30 teams in baseball, you'd expect teams to win about once every 30 years. So they're not wildly out of line there. What I will say about Syndergaard specifically is... He's had such a frustrating last two years. I was looking just at guys who have made the all-star team in the last two seasons. Syndergaard isn't one of them because he's been on the disabled list so much. And when he's not been on the disabled list, he's been so good. Of course, he had a somewhat ineffective start, even though he got the win against the Yankees last week because his velocity was down due to hand, foot, and mouth disease. It seems like he's taking it somewhat in stride. He tweeted a funny gif of a guy boarding a plane in a hazmat suit and said that was going to be him traveling with the team. So it seems like he's okay with it, which is the most important thing because, man, they had so many talented pitchers. We'll talk about sort of... The last remaining dominant one in a minute, but it's been downhill ever since 2015.
0: Yeah, and the curse or, or fatalism—I don't know. I—I'm going to get into this with Sean and Ben, so I don't want to to sort of spoil the the rest of the pod right here up front. But I'll just say this: like, it's—I'm kind of a de- a deterministic person. Like, I sort of believe that there's not a whole lot in any individual person's life that's within his or her control uh, in the, you know, so much more is, is based on the circumstances you were born into and the breaks that you get along the way. But I think there's a mistake in, in sort of in, in, Oh boy! Translating that determinism onto the Mets in the form of a curse, when so much so much of this is the product of rich and powerful people, specifically the Wilpons, like they they to a certain extent are making their own luck, and obviously they can't control whether Noah Syndergaard gets a a disease from a kid at a uh, you know at, at an event, like that's to a certain extent out of their control. But I think this, like, if this happens to, um. I don't know, to Yvonne Nova or, or Jameson Tyon. Like, it's not like, and the Pirates are a team whose front office and ownership have been have been criticized over the past couple of years. This isn't, nobody's saying, oh, it's a curse. They might say, oh, it's part of an unfortunate pattern. But it's not, like, this isn't cosmic justice. This is a failure of messaging. This is so much incompetence that it starts to look like Uh, a pattern, which it it probably is. And now we're sort of rolling in things that they can't control into these broader breaks that, you know, or or PR crises or whatever you want to call it that they could have controlled but didn't. So it's not like the, there is a a force for, a a more powerful force that's sort of determining all of this stuff. And it's not God or fate. It's the dipshit owners. So, but you wanted to talk about uh, Jacob deGrom, who's been I don't even want to say there are rumors. I don't know if th- that there's been a specific package that's that's really caught my attention in the, um, you know, we're just sort of talking about talking about Jacob deGrom at this point in time.
1: I mean, speaking of PR crises, it feels like there have been 18 different Mets crises just since deGrom's agent talked about him potentially wanting a trade. And that was what, like a week, two weeks ago? Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how time <laughs> time moves so slowly these days. DeGrom has been maybe the best pitcher in baseball this year. He has a 171 ERA, and essentially his agent said he wants a longer term contract. And if the Mets won't give it to him, then he wants to be traded, which was not a huge, necessarily, a hugely unknown idea. Someone like DeGrom, who broke into the majors pretty late, Uh, he's already 30 years old. He has two more years before he hits free agency. So given the way the market has gone over the last few years, given that he's a pitcher and he needs to look no further than Matt Harvey to see how quickly uh, an all-star pitcher's arm can go downhill, it's not a surprise that he wants more money right now. I I don't think that's huge news. It's just... That he is maybe the best pitcher in baseball this year, and he pitches for this team, that it sort of snowballed into something greater.
0: Calling it Degrom demanding a trade isn't completely accurate, although that's that's sort of in in spirit. That's sort of what it is. It's it's sign me, you know, give me that long term uh, security, or let me go find it somewhere else. Which is not, like you said, it's not unreasonable. It's not unexpected. How long have we been uh, trading uh, Chris Archer or Marcus Stroman, uh, you know, in? Um, how long have they been rumored to to be on the block? And this isn't that. It's it's only a different situation because DeGrom's a little bit older. He's much better, and it's the Mets. And it, but I think what that conversation really forces you to acknowledge is, and I think that's why the story has been so sticky. It it forces the people, maybe not the Mets themselves, but people like us who talk about the Mets a lot to. Wonder where they are. Are they still that team that won the pennant in 2015 uh, and uh, and returned to the playoffs in 2016? That still has Degrom, Syndergaard, Conforto, Brandon Nimmo, um, or are they like has their window closed? Should they be thinking about competing not in 2019 but in 2022? And if that's the case, then they should look into trading not just Degrom but Syndergaard and and Nimmo and pretty much everybody who's not. Uh, everybody except for Ahmed Rosario. And that's just that um, That question's pretty intimidating to look at considering how recently this team has been very,
1: very good and very optimistic about its future. And they were one of the few teams that actually did try to improve by signing veterans last offseason, signing guys like Todd Frazier uh, to contracts that we at the time thought were not bad. And they started off 11-1, and but the fact that they've played this poorly for so long and it kind of seems not a fluke does bring up that very question you mentioned and I'm not sure where the team goes from here. They still have a lot of good young players whether it's DeGrom in the rotation or Nimmo who's been fantastic this year in the outfield but the National League East is only going to improve from here on out even if the Nationals lose Bryce Harper. They still have a core of young talent led by Juan Soto. They Uh, Also have the Phillies and the Braves, who obviously look really good and could sign free agents this offseason going forward. So the National League East, which was the Nationals, maybe the Mets, and then three terrible teams, for the better part of this decade, all of a sudden looks like a really competitive division going forward. And that only makes the question more grim for the uh, the Mets.
0: So where do you come down? Are you... Sort of roll it back, try to hang around, try to improve through free agency. Maybe you know, maybe Peter Alonso turns into Paul Goldschmidt and see where it goes, or or do you tear it all down?
1: I don't think I tear it all down yet. I think I would be interested in exploring trading one of Degrom or Syndergaard because those two pitchers are so good and under team control for a few years that they could return the Chris Sale type return where the White Sox got back the best prospect in baseball and a top 30 pitcher. Uh, I'd be interested to see if that could sort of jumpstart contention, but I don't know how the team has presently constructed contends next year. Is that where you stand as well?
0: No, I think I'm, well, sort of, it's close. Uh, I think I'm a little more committed to contending in the short term than you are, but obviously that's a, a complicated you know, I mean, there's so many moving parts like and, and ownership matters more with this team, maybe more than any other in baseball. It's all it's it's all so very complicated. And we'll, you know, that's why we're devoting the entire podcast to it. So all right. Uh, Zach, you once again win the Heart and Hustle Award for the Ringer MLB show. It's a pleasure as always to
1: to have you on, and I'll talk to you next week. Perfect, because I win the Heart and Hustle Award before the podcast is even over, like with the season.
0: Thanks again to Zach Cram, and we'll be right back with Sean Fennessy after this message from Mattress Firm. You struggling to get to sleep? If so, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. Mattress Firm is here for you when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. These are mattress experts here, people. And they're not just mattress experts. They can help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They've got you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, if you go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast, you can save 10% with the code PODCAST10. Mattress Firm offers a 120 night sleep trial so you can rest assured that you'll love your mattress or your money back. And they offer a 120-night low-price guarantee, so you know you paid the perfect price. With more than 3,000 stores nationwide, not only are they in your backyard, but this means they have the ability to offer you deals that nobody else can, and that's on top of the 10% savings you'll already cash in on. So go to mattressfirm.com podcast and start sleeping better tonight. All right, so Monday night, Chase Utley returned to Philadelphia for the first time after announcing his retirement, and it was a hugely emotional scene. Uh, so to talk about that, I want to bring on Rigner, editor-in-chief, and Chase Utley superfan Sean Fennessy. God Sean, damn it, thank Michael. Thank you for joining the show.
2: God damn it. You set me up. You set me up really good.
0: <laughs> this was all... I, I promised that we'd talk about the Mets, and, uh, and I've brought you on to talk about Chase Utley. No, actually... Um, the Mets are are the topic of the day. They have been very interesting over the past week, and uh, we've sort of tiptoed around talking about them in any sort of depth, so we're doing a Mets marathon today. What do you want to talk
2: about? Okay, this is, uh, this is dangerous. It's interesting that you bring up Chase because I think you can lead back a lot of the pain, sorrow, frustration, anger back to that fateful slide in 2015 in the NLDS when Chase Utley truly revealed himself to be... Satan spawn, Um, you know where am I right now? I had resigned myself to uh, a horrendous season. It's interesting that you decided to call me onto this show. Not say when the team started eleven and two and looked like the best team in baseball, and not saying that
0: was deliberate. That (laughs) I
2: I, I know, I know, I feel worked. Um, And you know they're spiraling. They're 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 twenty games below five hundred and they are miserable. But I I think worse than that. Bad seasons happen in baseball all the time, as you know. Things don't go according to plan. Injuries happen, strategy fails. I think with the Mets, as usual, there is a kind of tidal wave effect where it is good after bad, bad after bad, bad after bad for everything that's happening now. And so we did, we're coming off of this ludicrous kind of, I, I don't know, Pinchonian uh, weekend of, of Mets news that it has just been really painful. So I'm not doing really well. I'm, I have a really angry relationship with baseball right now.
0: Who, apart from Chase Utley, would you say you're most angry at? Is this just like a series of bad beats? Is this mismanagement? And if so,
2: where? Well, there's a couple things. On the micro level, I think I'm frustrated with people who I had thrown in my lot with. You know, I was expecting a wonderful season from Michael Conforto. I was ex- expecting to see some interesting choices made by new manager Mickey Calloway. I was hoping to see a great leap for the pitching staff. I was hoping for a a vibrant comeback from my hero, Matt Harvey. Obviously, the latter especially did not go well, and he was ultimately dealt to the Reds. Um, So, you know, I think I'm frustrated with all of those things that have gone wrong. I could probably list five or ten more. But, you know, this being the Mets, obviously, they are owned and run by the Wilpon family. And Fred and Jeff, father and son, have owned the team for decades now, and they're incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. And they have created a, a deeply unfortunate management structure that is leading to all this top-down mess. And it's, so I'm just, you know, it's silly to be angry at an owner. I, I find myself as a Knicks and Jets fan and a Mets fan kind of routinely dismayed by the choices made by the people in the upper echelon of the organization. But the Will Wilpons, especially in the aftermath of, you know, the Madoff controversy, which has been well covered, just are extraordinarily inept. Even now, after years of living in the New York media bubble and being told routinely that they don't know what they're doing, they still just don't know what they're doing. So it's very frustrating, and it obviously starts with them. It's really shocking. I
0: mean, you mentioned and I hadn't considered this as like a a package deal with with uh, Jim Dolan and and Woody Johnson is sort of a, a weird ownership trifecta there. But it it's so strange in this. Era of soulless uh, um, communications conglomerates and anonymous hedge fund billionaires to find an, a sports owner who is, you know, incompetent is I think a word that gets thrown around so much that it it loses its meaning and I really wish we'd we'd save it for situations like this. It's it's just how do you get this rich, not knowing what you're doing on this scale? It's it's just breathtaking.
2: I know there should be something almost quaint about. I think particularly the Wilpons ownership. I think Dolan obviously was the son of a very wealthy man and Woody Johnson is the heir to an empire. So th- these are both people who didn't make their own fortunes. But you know Fred Wilpon in many ways did make his own fortune as a real estate magnate around New York. And there's some. this should be actually the best version of ownership. It should be a man who is in unique full control, having, having purchased um, out most of his partners in the 90s and taking on the majority ownership of the team. And he should be this... Homegrown, homespun guy, but you know, there's this native wound with Will Pon, where he grew up as a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, and he was never able to abandon that fandom. And for whatever you reason, could, he insisted uh, upon trying to make you want, you the start. Mets the Brooklyn Dodgers, which is impossible. The Mets' entire characteristic yeah. is born around underdog, and is born around um, a yeah, sort I'm of recording. newness, yeah. a sort of unlikeliness. And the Brooklyn Dodgers are are old baseball tradition, and I feel like the Will Pons in particular. Have tried to make an effort to seem like a bigger than thou organization, and routinely, ultimately, seems so much less than when they, whenever they try to do this stuff.
0: It is kind of weird because we think about bad owners a lot of the time, and particularly owners who are bad in part because they don't spend enough to be competitive, like the Wilpons do. It's neglect, and this isn't neglect. It feels like they love it, but in the way that like Lenny from of Mice and Men loves. Uh, the the rabbit or whatever the thing is that he strangles, you know, <laughs> that like they uh, they're they're crushing it like they don't know that sometimes to just let it go is the the best thing to do as an owner.
2: Yeah, I, I think about that a lot in terms of a lot of the deadline deal meddling that they did, particularly in the Omar Minaya years. And it's interesting that Omar is kind of back as one of this um, three headed GM monster that the Mets have right now. Um, I don't it's always hard to tell. There's always this sort of elusive on-the-edges reporting about Jeff Wilpon in particular meddling with the team. And we never fully officially know how involved they are with that. But inevitably, it just seems like you have a team like the one that they have this year that, that features some very strong frontline pitching talent, that features a handful of promising prospects who need time to grow and who are obviously not ready, and maybe a couple of people who were overestimated in their run. And they got tricked into thinking they were ready to compete. And so they went out and they gave big money deals to Jay Bruce, they gave big money deals to Todd Frazier, they gave big money deals to Jason Vargas. Now, I mean, big money is kind of, you know, is relative in in these terms, but it is money that is committed to players that are 35 years old that they probably just didn't need to do and are now either blocking young talent or are players with no long-term purpose on the team, especially as they imagine a rebuild. And make this decision about whether they should be trading Jacob deGrom, whether they should be trading Noah Syndergaard. So it, it's just, it's hard to know who is saying, make this choice, do this thing. Was it Sandy Alderson? Was it the Wilpon family? Was it John Rico, who's now been kind of stepping in since Alderson was um, diagnosed with a recurrence of his cancer? I, it's, it's hard to say. It does feel, though, inevitably like the Wilpons are at the root of everything
0: calling Jay Bruce a big money contract is sort of illustrative because you can get away with being a meddling owner. You know, Steinbrenner did Jerry Jones did Ed Snyder did with the flyers. As long as you, you sign the checks to be competitive. And the way you get in trouble is if you're meddling and you're also not making splashes, you know? So if it's Jay Bruce and not, um, you know, JD Martinez, for instance, they're, they're going after. So it's, it's, just a combination of, of interference and not letting, you know, I was optimistic when they hired Sandy Alderson, who's a legendary baseball ops figure. Like I didn't soon have him run the team as anybody. They just haven't given him room to work. And that sort of brings me to another, I mean, you're on here because you're a Mets fan. You, you have insights and you're, you know, you're a fun, sad Mets fan from, <laughs> from uh, my perspective, at least, but you're, you also have experience running, you know, a, uh, public facing company, essentially. And there are so many of these things that would look like bad luck or or short sighted sightedness and isolation just in total paint this larger picture. And I'm interested, like, what are what are the Wilpon's greatest sins? Where are they, you know, where are they screwing up the team so bad? You know, maybe that that isn't obvious to somebody who hasn't had to manage other people.
2: That's a very good question. You know, it's it's difficult to make direct comparisons between the work that we do and the work that a professional sports organization does. I will say generally there's a concept of accountability that in the media business I think also holds true in the sports business and the Wilpons are very elusive public figures. They're not they're not that present and the handful of times I can recall them saying anything of note on the record you know, the, the, that New Yorker feature in which um, Fred Wilpon referred to David Wright as sort of like a not a world-class player comes to mind, um, even though David Wright is probably the most uh, offensively gifted player the team has ever had, or at least a, a, across a sustained period of time and was the kind of the heart and soul of the team for five to seven years. And they're just kind of tactless, you know. They don't really know how to communicate. The, Jeff Passan wrote a column earlier this week about the team, and in it he noted that, the Wilpons still routinely think of a win for the Mets as whenever the Yankees are losing. They're always, they're still little brothering their way through things, even though we are now. I don't know. I mean, the team has been around for 57 years, nearly, and they're still thinking routinely about the, you know, the team across the city. And I think when you're in charge of a lot of people and you have a thing that you put out in the world every day, as we do with the Ringer, as the Mets do with their their product on the field. You have to just think about how every single choice that you make ultimately reflects on you, and you never get that sense from the Wilpons ever. Um, you never get the sense that they they are in control of things, and it's it's pretty demoralizing, you know. As a fan, there's we, we it's easy for us to say, "Oh, hashtag Lowell Mets," you know what a what a fail, what a what a disastrous team, and they make routinely mm-hmm. for entertaining internet fodder, but like. A lot of people work for the New York Mets and they go to work every day and they hope that they're going to have a good day and get a win. And I don't just mean the players. I mean, the people that work in marketing, communications, business affairs, this entire massive international organization that has fans around the world. And they're a joke. Like people, people are actively like, wow, what a joke. And that must be that must be brutal. That must just be terrible. I can't imagine what it's like.
0: Yeah. Terry Collins had his ups and downs as a manager with the Mets, but he just sort of seemed like a guy who the game had sort of passed by. Um in in certain ways that he dealt with players, but Mickey Callaway was I think universally the the hottest assistant coach on the market. Like he, I thought it was a great hire. He had great success as a pitching coach, would have made a great fit for for the Mets, and not only that, but got the best out of players like Carlos Carrasco and Trevor Bauer, who had been seen as for one reason or another as sort of difficult people to work with. And I thought he was going to be an incredible success, and it just he could not look more like he like he doesn't know what he's doing, you know? And it, I just wonder, if to a certain extent, that's contagious. And, like, Passan talked about how a first-year manager needs support in his column, and obviously he hasn't gotten that. It's just, I wonder if that's part of the the morale thing. Like, if, if you just wake up every day waiting for the next disaster, you know, I work at the ringer. I don't know what it's like to work at a place with bad morale. But like you said, it's it's got to be, it's got to impact everybody's uh, performance.
2: It's an interesting thing. We should unpack the kind of the season that Callaway is having because he had he had kind of a rough moment earlier this week when Jonas you know, Cespedes came forward and said that he felt like he was going to need surgery on both of his heels, which have been injured and bothering him. And you know he he has the biggest contract essentially in team history and. While I think he's actually been a great and somewhat underrated Met and significant to a lot of the team's success in the last five years, um, he's just not Mm. healthy and he's a slugger in his 30s and that doesn't usually go well long term. But anyway, so Cespedes came came forward and started talking about this injury and then Callaway was asked about it and Callaway kind of fumbled his way through his answer and said, like, I don't I don't really know anything about that, which is not a good thing when you are not connected to (laughs) your most talented player, essentially, barring maybe Jacob deGrom. So, I think he's had an interesting year. First-year managers are always very difficult to grade effectively, especially on a team as um, dysfunctional as the Mets. On the one hand, uh, you have Jacob Degrom having, I think, arguably a season for the ages. Um, you know, last night after another loss in a in a impressive performance, he's five and five with a one point seven one ERA, which is I don't know that's like a top one hundred ERA in the history of the game if the season ended today.
0: I wrote this in my awards column. I think it's one of the 13 best ERAs ever.
2: I mean, that's extraordinary. So you've got you've got Degrom, yeah. who is you know essentially a, a linchpin of the team and has spoken publicly about his desire to stay with the Mets for some godforsaken reason. You know, you have Noah Syndergaard, who has battled some injuries, but when he's been healthy, has pitched very well this year. You have Zach Wheeler, who especially in the last six weeks or so is having a nice bounce back season and is going to be a free agent in the offseason. You have Steven Matz, who, when he stays healthy, is pitching effectively. Those four guys have actually been pretty darn good. And if you just look strictly at sort of the the runs against, um, the Mets should be a competitive team. On the flip side, the bullpen is a complete fiasco. It's arguably the worst bullpen in the league. And the hitting has been abysmal. And how much... You have talked many times and written many times about kind of what impact a manager has on something like this. But I think the morale point that you make is persuasive because... It just doesn't seem like a really fun place to be. It Doesn't seem like a fun place to go. Even last night, Degrom had a comment about you know his inability to contribute on the hitting side and how disappointed he was in that. Which you know, on the one hand, shows him to be a very good guy. But if we're if we're leaning on Jacob Degrom to get big mm-hmm. hits, uh, that's a that's a bad place to be.
0: So saying he wanted to sign long term is not the only thing that Degrom said or his his agent uh, said. Like it, there's a shit or get off the pot moment and. If they're if they're not going to sign him long term, then he wants to go play for a contender. You know, play somewhere else where he's going to be in his early thirties by the time he hits. Well, he's going to be further into his thirties by the time he hits free agency. So that makes sense from Degrom's perspective. And if there was uh, an anonymous executive, and you know, I've talked about this with Zach, and have got to talk about it with Ben, who said if the Mets, the Mets might be inclined to trade Degrom to get a win by starting a rebuild, and that just doesn't that idea doesn't really wash with me. Like, you know, what would, that just seems like such a bad message to send from a team that's not only, like, it's one thing to rebuild if you're in a small market or you've just reached the end of your competitive cycle like the Royals have. But the Mets, went for they squandered a position of strength. And I, you know, what would it take from a DeGrom trade to to make you happy? I can't imagine there's any realistic return.
2: Well, I'll, I'll say one, the return that they got for Jerez Familia uh, has me very concerned about the the group of people making <laughs> making deals right now. Um, that mm-hmm. that trade was was roundly mocked by analysts in terms of the return that the Mets got, and so I, I have some genuine concerns about letting those people put their hands on the levers around genuinely valuable commodities like Degrom and Syndergaard. You know, I, I just. I completely agree with you that there's just no way that the fan base, if they deal to Grom, especially in a bad deal, are going to be excited for a rebuild. And even in this sort of sophisticated 21st century version, process-centric version of rebuild, no one trusts this team to do this the right way. No one trusts the organization to execute on it in in a thoughtful, progressive fashion. So... In many ways, I'd almost rather they just continue to be committed to the the talent that they have and hope they get lucky with some young players. I mean, Brandon Nimmo has been one of the few bright spots on the team. He's a 25-year-old outfielder. You know, he was a a high-round draft pick who had a lot of promise and then just kind of, I don't know, hung around the farm system for a little bit longer than people expected and somehow has emerged into a valuable three- or four-win player this year. I feel like there's probably more players in the system who could evolve into that, and I'd rather watch Jacob deGrom pitch while those people do that, then not. So I'm 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 torn. On the one hand, I certainly want happiness for Jacob deGrom. Uh, I certainly want happiness for Noah Syndergaard, despite his hand, foot, and mouth disease. Yeah, uh, I, want,
0: I want Noah Syndergaard to wash his hands more. I think it's the...
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't make this shit up, right? Like, I, just the, the, the fact that that is the sort of disease that he's contracting tells you everything you need to know about the team right now. I don't know, as an expert, as somebody who covers the game every day... Do you think that they should be approaching a rebuild? Now, set aside your sort of native Philly interests. Do you think that they should be rebuilding?
0: No. They're too good to to do a hard tank. If they traded away Syndergaard and Conforto um, and maybe found a way to get out from some of the, the Cespedes and Bruce contracts and uh, who else? I oh, DeGrom and Steven Matz. They trade all those guys away because that's even players in their mid-20s wouldn't be... Uh, wouldn't still be in pre-free agency by the time they got out of this this rebuild they trade all those guys away they'd have the best farm system in baseball history if they made smart trades because teams that because they and they'd spend the next five to seven years looking for the next conforto looking for the next DeGrom or Syndergaard or whoever else because they've already got the the bones of i think an average team and i it's the road to to success you know we saw this what the angels did last year where they had like a 500 ish team and they just made a couple smart free agent signings. And if Otani doesn't get hurt and Richards doesn't get hurt again, um, if Zach Kozart doesn't have a freak injury, then they're probably going to make the playoffs this year. And it's not that hard to get from even in a tough division. It's not that hard to get from 500 ish to 89 wins. And, you know, particularly if we're, and this is the the other thing about the Wilpons is this team ought to be spending to the luxury tax threshold at the very least, and they're leaving they're leaving sixty million dollars worth of free agents on the table every single year, and so it should. But even within those constraints, this is just this is just not a team I'd blow up. And uh, yeah, it, what you said just run most of this back and hope they get lucky on a couple other players. I think Peter Alonso, who's, who ought probably ought to be up already, um, is a good example of sort of a safe-ish uh, college bat who's really developed in the minor league system. Their player development's been pretty good. This is not the Orioles. This is not um, one of those teams that just can't develop any talent. So, you know, I think that they're not too far from, and I think all, this almost makes it more frustrating, frustrating actually, is they're not that far from being a, a true talent 85 win team that can that's within a couple breaks of making the playoffs. It's just everything seems to go wrong. And every time something goes wrong, it seems to be handled in the most ham-fisted way.
2: I know I, I definitely entered the season thinking and we might have even talked about this thinking that they essentially were that team you're describing that they were an 85 win team with a couple yeah. of thoughtful smart moves at the deadline. I mean, I was tricking myself into thinking they'd be in the Machado sweepstakes back in April and I obviously feel like a fool now, but there's no reason why they shouldn't be competing for Machado or Bryce Harper in the offseason. As you say, the, the the problem is and it goes back to the where we started this conversation it's still just not clear how liquid the, the Madoff family, or excuse me, mm-hmm. the, that's a Freudian slip there, <laughs> the, uh, the Wilpon family really is. You know, I just don't know what the state of their finances are, and they don't have to be forward-facing about that. And so we have to wonder why the team only spends, say, $120 million when they should be spending $180 million or or $200 million because they exist in the biggest media market in America, and they should be a thriving enterprise. But, you know, it's one of those things where, the more you fail, the worse your reputation gets, the less likely you are to actually spend to improve that reputation and they find themselves in this death spiral that is never-ending.
0: Yeah. I'll be honest with you. I've been, while you've been talking the past like six or seven minutes, I've been trying to think of a good note to end this on and I'm coming up blank. Fun so,
2: podcast, Michael. Thanks for uh, having me on.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> it was illuminating if nothing else. Learning is always fun. That's that's what we'll end on.
2: Thanks for letting me vent and uh, thanks for your... Probably dishonest words of of measured calm about uh, the future for the Mets.
0: <laughs> it's so bad I don't need to rub your face in it anymore. That's that's how uh, that's how how much things have deteriorated. But you know maybe what next? I'll tell you what, next time they start eleven and one, I'll definitely have you on the the podcast to gloat.
2: That sounds very exciting. That'll probably be in twenty twenty five. Until then, hope springs eternal. Three months till the Knicks fuck up again.
0: <laughs> All right, talk to you later. Thanks, Michael. Now, before we bring on Ben Lindbergh, let's take a quick break to talk about Memory Bank. Do you consider yourself financially minded and someone who knows how to maximize earnings? What if we told you that you could be earning a lot more on interest with Memory Bank's Earn More Checking? Memory Bank's Earn More Checking account pays 1.60% annual percentage yield. That's 30 times the national average on interest. They don't have confusing monthly requirements you have to fulfill to earn this great rate. Your deposits will start growing from dollar one. Their online account opening process only takes 10 minutes. And their online banking platform is easy to use with features like mobile deposit, bill pay, and external transferability. Best of all, since Memory Bank is the digital arm of a well-established community bank, it was designed to give you a community bank feel while focusing on innovation, the best of both worlds. Visit mymemorybank.com MLB and apply to start earning 1.60% APY today. 1.60% annual percentage yield APY as of June 28, 2018 paid on earn more balances from $0.01 to $249,999.99 for funds in Excess of $249,999.99, 0.05% APY will be earned. $50 minimum opening deposit. Message and data rates may apply. Member FDIC. As always, we close the show with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, you're here to talk about the Mets as well.
3: Yeah, this is the third part of an episode about lamenting the Mets. So I assume the only listeners left are extremely masochistic Mets fans and fans of other teams who are relishing the Schadenfreude. So thanks to those two groups for sticking around for this segment. I I
0: I legitimately think the Mets are very very interesting. Like there's an extent to which so too. did, Did we talk about this last week? That like. One side effect of the sort of professionalization of the baseball front office is that everything is sort of standardized. Like there's not yeah. a great variation. Yeah, I, I think there's there's no better example of that than the Mets.
3: So just, Yeah, there's not enough to rubberneck at these days in baseball. So the Mets are performing a valuable service. And let me tell you something else. I'm kind of counting on certain Mets
0: fans turning this off, such as the last segment's guest, Sean Fennessy, who has ordered us <laughs> not to talk about Tim
3: Tebow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm okay. I I can comply with that directive. Oh, really?
0: I was going to ask you your thoughts on Tim Tebow's out for the season. I thought he had a legitimate shot at making the big league roster before before season's end. Before he suffered that most perilous of baseball hitter injuries—the broken hamate bone.
3: Yes, he may have. I don't know whether that reflects well on him or poorly on the Mets or possibly both. Both, I think. But yeah, I think probably both.
0: We talked about this when he first signed with the Mets. We talked to David Ardsma, who had worked out with Tebow a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Tebow looked bad. And it's just so impressive that after having never really played high-level baseball and having missed like a decade's worth of reps, he has been sort of a mediocre minor league hitter like Mm -hmm. just the hardest thing to do in sports is is hit a baseball so it goes the cliche but uh I'm I've just been very impressed with uh with the way Tebow has adapted to professional pitching like this is this is if this is a bit like we thought it was he is way more committed to it than I think it looked like at, at the beginning
3: Yes, he clearly wants to be doing this too, so you can't say that it's some sort of stunt because he has stuck with it for better or worse, so that's to his credit.
0: With Zach and Sean, we sort of talked about the gloomy near future for the Mets, and not that like the distant future is going to be a whole lot sunnier, but I'm curious (laughs) if you have thoughts on – I've thought about this a lot, how one might fix the Mets, but sort of looking forward, what – what can they do? Like, what is a successful Mets team next year or several years from now look like?
3: Yeah, that's a tough question. So the farm system is not strong, I wouldn't say. I actually just looked up their top prospect, according to MLB.com, is Andres Jimenez, who is a high A prospect. They have him at number 67. And there are only four teams that don't have a prospect ranked ahead of the Mets' top-ranked prospect. That's the Orioles and Royals, not company anyone wants to keep right no, now. Not really. And then the Giants, who are also sort of on the downside, and then somewhat surprisingly, the Cubs, who at least have an excuse to be there in that they've recently won a World Series and promoted lots of good prospects. So the Mets are not in a group there that anyone really wants to be in. So there's not a ton of help on the way. The Padres, by the way, have seven of the top 50 prospects, which is just obscene. I guess they deserve that. Their fans have suffered as well. The Braves have six of those top 50, which I think speaks to something that also doesn't bode very well for the Mets, which is that this is not a good division to be on the way down in. There are some divisions where you could look forward and say that teams are not really putting things together and maybe there's an opportunity. I mean, you could look at the AL Central, for instance, and it seems like the Indians kind of have a clear lane for a few years. But the Mets now are really perhaps the only team in the NL East that is really heading downhill. I guess you could say the Nationals, but even they don't look like their window is closing no. exactly. And I'd say
0: even if they lose Harper, they're not – a They're not not going to be a contender next year.
3: Right. And the Braves and the Phillies are good already and getting better. And then the Marlins can't really get worse and hopefully are finally on an upswing. So the competition is going to get tougher, and that's something that the Mets haven't really taken a ton of advantage of. I guess they did make it to the playoffs a couple times, and they made a World Series, so they did take some advantage of the lull in the NL East. But now that's over, and there are better teams and younger teams and teams that are farther along in their rebuilds, so... It's hard to look medium-term and say that the Mets are set up, and it's sort of hard to look long-term, too, because of the ownership situation.
0: Yeah, and the farm system, I wonder if those rankings um, might undersell the farm system a little bit. Not by a lot, uh, but Mm -hmm. I actually don't know if MLB.com has updated uh, their prospect list with uh, players from this most recent draft, but I think they did a pretty good job in, in this in this draft, uh, getting Jared Kalanick, who might have been the top high school hitter um, and a pretty polished one and one who stands to move fairly quickly. There's a, a developmental profile fairly similar to, to Brandon Nimmo, uh, which, if nothing else, uh, illustrates that the Mets have had some recent success sort of taking that small school, cold weather high school bat and turning him into something and. Um, mm-hmm. And that's another thing. Like, this is not the Orioles with pitchers. The Mets have some track record in the recent past of developing players well, even if it's a little weird. Like, I I would say what the Mets have done with their minor leaguers over the past few years is weird, but not necessarily bad. Yeah. So... It's not completely hopeless. And the other thing is there's there's talking with, you know, in the Jeff Passon column, for instance, he quoted an anonymous executive as saying something like I would try to buy low on, or try to get Jacob de ground for cheap because the Mets might try to to get a PR win by by rebuilding. And right. I just don't know if. So here's the thing, like I would. The hard tank, I think, is appropriate in times like like for the Astros, for instance, where there was just there was no money, there was no farm system to speak of, there was no young talent on the team. The Mets have a pretty much a 500 team right now. Like that, I would expect Mm -hmm. this this team to win about 80 games as currently constituted, with the key players under team control for several more years, and uh, uh, and locked into below market salaries in terms of. Sindergard, Conforto, uh, Nemo, um, Ahmed Rosario, DeGrom, and it's not that hard to build that team into a competitive team, even in a difficult division, if you know what you're doing. And so, from that perspective, it would be incredibly hard to sell off to to to, to just punt on this group. Uh, yeah, but if they did, they would get back just a gigantic return in prospects. Like you're thinking about the last time we saw a team. Pun on a, a young competitive team and just go hard tank with the Braves headed heading into their new ballpark. Right.
3: I was going to say, if anything, that was probably premature and that was unnecessary. premature. And yeah.
0: but you look at the farm system the Braves have now, and a lot of that is a result of trading off. Or I don't, I actually don't remember how many of those guys are the direct result of of uh, the Kimbrel trade or, or Hayward or. Um, or Andrew and Simmons and a lot of like Sean Newcomb's in the majors. Now uh, Mike Fulton, mm-hmm. is in the majors, So a lot of those guys are, are contributing now as opposed to still being on those prospect lists, but they got back a huge haul of, of talented youngsters. And I don't like that. What they got back for those players is a fraction of what the Mets could get back. If they decided to sell on Cindergarten to Grom and Conforto and played their cards, right. And I think that's the big, the big question going forward, it's not that there aren't avenues back to winning. It's do we trust this front office, which seems to be confused at the moment, lacking mm-hmm. a GM with Sandy Alderson having gotten sick? And yes. I don't know. You know, there are easy, not easy paths, but but clear paths back to contention and clear paths back to contention relatively soon. It's just a matter of execution. And that's been problematic for the Mets recently.
3: Yeah, I didn't totally follow the line of thought that trying to rebuild and deciding to sell would be greeted with open arms I, or necessarily I seen as a I absolutely don't PR agree way. with that, but no. that's just what somebody There's else a, said. There's a perception that big markets just won't tolerate a rebuild or a teardown, and I'm not sure that's true either. I think in certain cases, you can kind of educate a fan base or brainwash a fan base into liking that plan, but I'm not sure, as you said, that the Mets have the confidence of of their fans for good reasons exactly. that you would really trust them to get back what you would want to get back. So, I think that's a concern as well. Now, if they did manage to move those guys and actually get great prospects back, it would really jumpstart things. And I can imagine that Mets fans probably wouldn't mind if the next youth movement were position player based, (laughs) having lived through Generation K and whatever this current generation is called. I guess it doesn't have a nickname, but it has a lot of injuries in common. You'd think that it's just a lot less stressful probably to follow a team that is built around prospects who are a little more stable and obviously the Astros had a lot of success with that the Cubs had a lot of success with that the Braves seem to try a pitching centric rebuild but have ended up with a position player core they still have young pitching but they also have Albies and Acuna and guys like that so I think in the long run it's maybe safer to build around those guys unless every team has decided to do that in which case you're not going to really get an advantage there and maybe there will be some pitchers who are undervalued so I don't know. They've tried this plan and you can't say it didn't work because, again, they made the playoffs a couple times. They won a pennant. And when those guys were healthy, they were good. So as you were saying, it's not an Orioles situation where they've just had repeated failures of player development. They've had some really notable player development success stories like Jacob deGrom. So they can turn talent into polished major leaguers they just can't seem to keep those major leaguers healthy.
0: Yeah. And as far as pitchers versus position players, I mean, you know as well as I do, that's sort of a simplistic way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um and they they hit huge on a lot of really tricky pitching prospects uh to set up that run. And even even tricky prospects they sent high or spent high picks on, but at the same time they've also invested pretty heavily on in sort of safe college bats. And that's sort of that's what we've seen uh, in a couple of later drafts, you know, accepting Dom Smith, who was just sort of a weird pick to begin with. But Conforto was about as safe a pick as there was at at 10 in the 2014 draft. And you know, looking beyond that, you know, they drafted Peter Alonso, who's now sort of taking that that leap. Carlos Cortez this year, who could who is a, a player I like a lot. You know, they've gotten a lot of safer picks to sort of mitigate the risk of taking Uh, of, you know, building this team around pitching. Mm -hmm. So for a big market team, right, there's a level to which I think we ought to expect a team to spend. And for a team, not just in a big market, but literally in New York, it's not okay for them to be spending $50, $60 million short of the uh, luxury tax threshold every year. Like, just think about what... I did a a thought exercise uh, with Zach a couple... A couple weeks ago, and like, what does sixty million dollars get you just on the free agent market? Like, that gets you Manny Machado and AJ Pollock and a couple other pieces probably. If you can spend mm-hmm. that sixty million dollars a year, and that's with a couple contracts like Familia's coming off the books, um, Jason Vargas is going to come off the books next year. It's not that they're locked into contracts that they can't move or can't work around. It's just that ownership, in addition to screwing up a lot of stuff behind the scenes, just isn't spending enough to make them competitive.
3: Yeah. And I think there's a reason for that. So I just checked in with Howard Megdahl, the author of Wilpon's Folly, which at this point probably deserves a sequel because there's been (laughs) a lot of Wilpon Folly since 2011. Very smart by
0: him to to carve out that (laughs) niche.
3: Yeah. So the Mets are just working with a massive debt here that seemingly is still there. So Howard says there's a lot that we don't know about this situation, but we know that the Mets and the Wilpons borrowed against the franchise and against SNY in the aftermath of the whole Bernie Madoff debacle just to stay afloat and to retain their ownership of the team. And that led to an enormous amount of money, Howard says, north of a hundred million dollars annually a few years Ago and likely every bit as large now that's going simply to service that debt. So, just kind of keeping the wheel ponds afloat. So, we don't know an exact number, but it's likely still that huge. So, you have to factor that into the Met spending or non spending, which is not to excuse them, but it is to explain why they're not willing to commit more money. And that unfortunately seems like it will continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. And as Howard said, that puts some restrictions on the team from a Planning perspective that a lot of other teams don't have to deal with. So you have other baseball operations departments that are looking three to five years ahead. And then you have the Mets who are operating on kind of a day to day and week to week basis. And I think that even when they're not operating with a tripartite GM, the GM doesn't necessarily know how much money is going to be available the next season or the next offseason. So it's really hard to have a long-term plan. So assigning like the Jay Bruce contract, for instance, which you know wasn't the most efficient use of that money, but maybe if you're the Mets GM and you get the green light to spend, you figure, well, I better use this money while it's available to me because tomorrow who knows what I'll have to spend. So I think that the Mets are really kind of handicapped from a long-term planning perspective and barring some ownership change. I don't know why that would change in the near future.
0: And let's end on this. I'm curious what you think about the fact that the owners have become and have been for the better part of a decade, like the lightning rod. It's it's kind of unusual because usually owners, and this is another thing that the Wilpons just turn out not to be very good at, is deflecting blame. You know, we talked about Bruce Sherman doing this with the Marlins is as, as he is, has hedge funded them all the way back to last place or, or would have if the Mets weren't uh, also in the running uh, for last place in the National League East. But they're such lightning rods. And it's it's kind of weird to see not just angry fans or, you know, sort of lefty writers like me calling them out by name. But like Mark Krig in the athletic uh, took a flamethrower to them last week. And it's it's interesting to see the owner ownership being called out by name as a specific part of the problem in both opinion pieces and reported pieces. And, you know, it's just usually owners are better at deflecting, uh, at deflecting attention or criticism than the wool ponds are. And the, I guess the most disheartening thing about this is with everything that we know about this ownership group. Now it, You'd think that eventually you'd be able to shame these people into selling the team and coincidentally, by the way, making back all the money they owe and more uh, because the Mets would sell for multiple billions of dollars almost certainly. Um, But if there's one thing we know about Jeff Wilpon in particular, it's that the man cannot be
3: shamed. (laughs) So.
0: You know, I'm just curious what you think or what you make of, of that sort of hostile environment towards ownership that's unusual in American
3: yeah, sports. Yeah, I guess you really want your owner to be kind of like your umpire in that you don't really notice what the owner is doing mm-hmm. and you don't really have anything to criticize the owner slash umpire for. You just kind of want them to be in the background and sign the checks and let other people make the decisions. And there's a different kind of criticism that Mets ownership gets than other ownership groups, I think, in that you can fairly criticise. Criticize the owners of other teams for just opting not to spend. Whereas with the Mets, maybe it's that they literally can't spend because of the situation they've gotten themselves into. Although, as you note, there is a lot of value there that they've accrued in the franchise and that they could recoup if they ever chose to. But just in terms of operating budget year to year, maybe the Mets really don't have the flexibility that some other teams have. So you can criticize them for getting themselves into that situation. I don't know if they are subject to the same critiques for not spending now that they're in that situation, but the Mets obviously just have a PR problem. They're just terrible at presenting their message. The message itself isn't great, but it could be better, I think. And I mean, we don't have to rehash the whole debate that we had last year about whether the Mets are actually as badly off as they seem to be. I think we both agreed and were chastised by Sean for expressing the opinion that there are other teams that are in worse positions than the Mets and certainly have been a lot longer out of the playoffs. And you and I were even just talking before we started recording. There's even another team this very season that has lost more days to injury than the Mets. It's the Texas Rangers, which came as a complete surprise to both of us. Neither of us had really dwelt on the fact that the Rangers have had a lot of injuries this year because, well, I I guess they haven't had hand, foot and mouth disease. I don't know. Their injuries haven't been as attention getting
0: I would assume that the the manager, the general manager, and the players are all aware, like they all have all of the information they need to operate yeah. and aren't learning about, like, you know, Jeff Bannister, uh, there are things to criticize about his, man, you know, his uh, tenure as mm-hmm. manager of the Rangers, but in my experience, he's been aware of you know, if if one of his star players had had a, a degenerative heel condition, yeah. then he would have been aware of it before reporters told him. Right. There are other
3: teams that make mistakes, but in most of those cases, you can't say that they just didn't know what they were doing, that it was complete yeah, incompetence. Right? And the Mets, I mean, I talked to Lindsay Adler, who writes for The Athletic earlier this season. She covers the Yankees and the Mets. And obviously, there's quite a contrast between those two teams right now. But she said it's not just the results on the field it's the way that they operate and their messaging and that it's just complete incompetence when you witness them mm-hmm. up close there is really a, a strong disparity between the Yankees and the Mets so I don't think it's just that we're picking on them or that they happen to put their hands and feet in their mouths I guess is uh, <laughs> one way to put it but I, I think there is some of that it's you know partly that the team is actually in a lousy situation and partly it's that they present themselves in the worst possible light
0: well we're going to try to present present ourselves in a better light or at least present information about some of the 29 other teams (laughs) next week. But I thought it was important to just stop and and take stock of this. So
3: until then, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks. Yeah, everyone can feel better about their baseball teams now.
0: And that'll do it for this week's episode of The Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach Cram, Sean Fantasy, and Ben Lindbergh for joining me. Thanks to the New York Mets and their various dysfunctions for giving us something to talk about. Thanks to Jim Cunningham for producing today's episode. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the games, and I'll see you next time. Memory Bank's Earn More Checking account pays 1.60% annual percentage yield. That's 30 times the national average on interest. No confusing monthly requirements. Just take 10 minutes to open an online account and your deposits will start growing from dollar one. It's super easy and offers all the features you'd expect, such as mobile deposit, bill pay, and external transferability. Visit mymemorybank.com MLB and apply to start earning 1.60% APY today. 1.60% annual percentage yield APY As of June 28, 2018, paid on earn more balances from $0.01 to $249,999.99. For funds in excess of $249,999.99, 0.05% APY will be earned. $50 minimum opening deposit, message, and data rates may apply. Member FDIC.